0: I'd like you to take a Bible if you would and turn to First Corinthians chapter six. This is on page 956, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now we're finishing up an initial kind of mini-series within a larger series that is on 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6. And we haven't even really gotten into chapter 5 yet because I felt it was necessary to give kind of a backdrop to understand the content of what you jump into in chapter 5, and the best way to do that was to think about the Christian view of sex, the Bible's teaching on sex for a few weeks, so the next week when we come to chapter 5, it will um, make more sense, but I just want to read from two passages, I'm going to read first from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the last three verses, verses 12, excuse me, 18 through 20. And then turn over, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, and this is on page 987. And I'm just going to read the first seven verses, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. Finally, then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we acknowledge that around your throne, even now, those who have gone before us and mysterious living creatures of an angelic nature, apparently, surround you and they acknowledge your holiness and your praises. And thank you that you invite us to come into your presence in our spirits as we worship you. And you say that those who come to you through your Holy Spirit will find you and you yourself will undertake to teach us and that our worship will be real in spirit and truth. And we pray that that would be the case this morning and we pray that as we look into your word you would give us understanding of what it says and the ability to apply what we find there. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a common belief of modern life that private behavior is nobody else's business as long as no one gets hurt. People are free in our society to pursue whatever hobbies, recreations, jobs, personal habits they want. And we're free to have our own friends, develop our own relationships, pursue whatever relationships we want with absolute freedom. There's one qualification that we all accept, and that is as long as no one gets hurt by the activity. And this maxim is so universally accepted, it seems like we, we might wonder to ourselves why it wasn't until just a generation or two ago that people came up with that idea. After all, why should we tell others what to do with their lives? And um, as long as they're not hurting someone else, what difference does it make to us what they're doing? And that maxim is easily applied to sexual morals. In fact, it often is. Uh, And uh, the idea that is stated by college professors and politicians and sometimes even by parents is what people do in their bedrooms is their own business. It's not anybody else's business. As long as no one gets hurt, it doesn't matter. Well, what I'm going to do this morning is I want to think about that statement and whether it really applies to sexual morals. I've been trying to demonstrate for the last three weeks precisely what the Bible's teaching is because I know people are confused by it oftentimes. But it is the distinct and clear teaching of the Bible that uh, sexual relations outside of marriage are wrong. I'm not trying to say that's an easy policy to adopt or live by in fact statistics would tell us that the majority of us in this room have uh, not lived by that consistently and yet that is the teaching of the bible what i'm trying to convince you is that is what the bible teaches and the bible being god's word written is giving to us an understanding of the way he designed human life to function and we need to make our choices accordingly now this this idea that what people do in their bedroom is no one else's business, I'm going to say is essentially true. might quibble about some details, but it's essentially true as long as you pay attention to the last seven words, as long as no one gets hurt. And I know that some people might say, how could you question that? After all, how could two consenting adults who engage in a mutually enjoyable activity, how could anyone be hurt by that? seems like a silly thing to even assert. And other people might say, I, I had many sexual relationships before marriage, and um, I've had a wonderful life in marriage. I don't think what you're saying is even true. And young people, I'm afraid, might say, well, what you're saying might be true, but no one lives that way anymore. Notwithstanding all of that, what I want to say this morning is essentially this. All activity outside of the marriage covenant is wrong, Because people get hurt. Because it does harm people. And I want to think about that because the Bible says it clearly and we often miss what it is saying. Now, the first passage we read this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, at the very end there, has this important verse. It's a command. He says, flee immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, there's a common notion among Christians, I found, that um, sin is all the same. And while it is true in the eyes of a God of infinite holiness, sin is all on the same level. It doesn't matter how large or small it is, all sin is damning in its consequences. However, the Bible is much more nuanced than that, and it tells us that sin falls into many different categories. After all, just socially speaking, on a horizontal level, I would rather someone hate my guts than murder me even though Jesus said murder starts with hatred in the heart, and that is a damning sin. Now, Paul, in this, with these words, make, uh, makes uh, a distinction between sins. And he puts all sins on one side, with one exception, and he puts the one exception on the other side, sexual immorality. And he doesn't say that they're different because all sins can be forgiven except sexual immorality. The Bible doesn't teach that. Um, It it doesn't put all sins on one side because sexual immorality is the worst form of sin. It isn't in the Bible's reckoning of things. It's different, he says, because it impacts the body. All sins that a person commits are outside the body, but the person who sins in a sexual way sins against his own body. Now, what in the world does that mean? I mentioned last week that in this passage, uh, the last paragraph of this chapter, the word body is used eight times, and it's referring to more than just our physical flesh. It's referring to the unity of the person. But he's talking about the material, immaterial person that makes up the unique person that you are in a unity together, which is what God uh, created, what he intends for human life. And he says there's something about sexual sins that is a unique sin against the whole person. Well, it goes like this. If, uh, if I overeat, for example, I sin against my physical body. But it doesn't involve a relationship. There is nothing deeper than the food that I am eating and the impact it has on my body. Um, I might bring upon myself some temporal pain. You know, I, I, I might struggle with weight and I might have some problems that would come out of that. But there's nothing about overeating that marks my soul. It doesn't change my personality. On the other hand, if I commit an act of immorality, I join my soul to another person in such a way that, as I've said the last few weeks, at a deepest level, it marks who I am and what I am. It marks the soul in such deep ways that it impacts everything that I carry with me from that point forward. And... So he's saying we should flee sexual immorality because unlike any other sin, it involves me in a relationship that carries with it all of the lasting uh, things that relationships bring to us. Here's the bottom line, as I said before. Sexual immorality, sexual activity marks the soul. So it all depends on context. It's not saying that sexual activity is wrong because for a loving married couple... Their physical relationship gives to them memories and sensations and images and feelings that are part of the strings that tie their lives together as they get older into a unified whole. It's meaningful. It's important. As I've said before, it's a sign of the covenant. They become part of the things that wrap their lives together. But those same marks are left if the relationship is simply casual, or even if it deals with some level of romantic attachment, but it's outside of marriage, it becomes, in that case, the soul-marking memories, sensations, images, all those things that a person carries with him or her into the rest of life. So, first, who is hurt by sexual immorality? The person who engages in it. Every other sin is outside the body. But sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Someone else has heard also, and that's uh, what I want you to turn over to 1 Thessalonians for, if you would. I don't want to spend much time here, but this is another passage where the Apostle Paul speaks of uh, sexual immorality, and he also speaks of it here very clearly. He says, if you uh, would look at verse 3, "...for this is the will of God, your sanctification." Now, the word means holiness, you're being set apart for God. This is the will of God, that you live a life that sets you apart for God's purposes. And he's telling us the will of God. People wonder what the will of God is. Well, here is part of the revealed will of God for human life, and particularly for those of us who belong to Christ. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, so God's revealed will for human life is that we live sexually pure lives. Now that requires self-control, and self-control is something we are meant to exercise by the power of God, and we're not to live like those who are outside of God's um, church, outside of relationship with God, outside of His people where they do not have this understanding as well as motivation to live for God. And then he states the real point that, verse 6, no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now, how could you transgress or wrong another person by an act of sexual immorality? It says brother there, but it probably means brother and sister. They use the male Now and there in the ancient world, as we did until recent times, to refer to brethren, you know, brothers and sisters, the family of God. Well, there are two ways. What this is saying is that there's something about sexual immorality that harms someone else. Well, I'd say you harm two different people, potentially. One is you're harming the other person in the relationship. Well, Again, you might ask, well, how could you be harming a person with whom you're in a mutual relationship? There's no coercion involved. It's free. You're both engaging in this. How could you be harming them? Well, let's think about it in narrow terms, even though it applies much more broadly, but let's think of it in terms of how the Bible would view virginity. Um, sex as an activity is, is a profoundly important precious gift that God gives to us to be expressed in a covenant relationship with another person who has made a lifetime commitment to us and to our good and vice versa. And uh, it's likewise pictured in virginity, which is a precious gift given to every human being by God. It's a gift that we are able to give one time and never again. It is meant to be given at least in the design of God I'm laboring to say, few people live this way, it seems, in the modern world, but it is meant to be given as the sign of the covenant, this precious gift that has been established in a marriage between two people. So, if I can speak plainly, when you take another person's virginity outside of marriage, you are stealing from them, and that's the word the passage used, you are stealing something from them that was given to them by God that they were to give to another person in marriage. So first of all, you're stealing from a person. And God says you're stealing something just as much as if you stole a piece of clothing or uh, an article of jewelry or whatever it is. You take from the other person uh, something that he or she was meant to present to their future spouse. And then... You also sin against their future spouse, it says. You're stealing from their future spouse something that was meant to be reserved for them. The word that's translated here, wrong, that no one transgress and wrong his brother. It means cheat, defraud. And what you're doing there is you're taking something from them, the covenant sign that was meant to be reserved for them. You are stealing it from them. And so they will never be able to go to the marriage bed knowing that this person is giving to them the precious gift of their virginity, it will not be able to happen. Again, I'm speaking the Bible's teaching. And then it says after that, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. This is incredibly significant. God regards this as a central command, as as an important aspect of human life regardless of the fact that it's violated many, many times, and particularly at the present time, it doesn't seem to carry with it the importance that it once did, it says that God himself is going to undertake to deal with this. And I can tell you just from speaking with people over the years and also with counselors who do a lot more uh, counseling with people, this is a problem that is carried into marriage and throughout marriage in so many ways that many people cover up and they figure, well, that's just how my life was meant to be. But it wasn't. Sexual immorality hurts the person. It's a sin against my own person because it marks me in ways I carry with me for the rest of my life. And it's a sin against other people, both the partner in the sexually immoral relationship and his or her future spouse by stealing from them something that was meant to belong to them alone. Now I want you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It doesn't only hurt myself and hurt other people. Good verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, the simple teaching of this is that sexual immorality is a sin against God himself. And again, you might wonder How could an activity with another person on a horizontal level be a sin against God himself? Well, the reality is all sin is ultimately against God. All sin is a violation of God's law in various ways. And God is the one who established these things so that we would live according to his purposes. We would give our lives to him for his glory. And every time we deviate from that, what we're doing is we're sinning against God. We're rebelling against God's purposes for life. Now, the passage says there's two specific reasons why it's a sin against God. The first one is because if you're a Christian, God has given to you his Holy Spirit to promote your holiness so that you will reflect his character. So it says, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Note, he doesn't say your spirit is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He says your body, and again, he's using that word to refer to the whole person that you are, What you are as a person, again, this is against all forms of Greek dualism that say that the body and the spirit are two separate things, and what you do with your body doesn't matter. It's only what you do with your spirit that matters. From the Bible's perspective, those things are united into a unique whole, an individual person. And so it says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That means that God intends to use not only that immaterial part of you to change your personality, but the very members of your body to express his will as you move through the world. And it is not his will, as it said very clearly in First Thessalonians, it is not his will that you engage in sexual immorality. And note that the body is said to be a temple, the dwelling place of God. We no longer have a temple as they had under the Old Covenant. There was a massive temple in Jerusalem that people went to to worship. And all of that was to prepare for the coming of Christ, who we are told is the true temple of God. And we, who are Christians, are individually stones in that temple so that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in a person's life, which is the distinct way in which God draws us to himself. He gives us his spirit. The spirit is the one who unites us to Christ. He's the one who brings with him the gift of eternal life, God's quality of life, that he plants in our soul. And that eternal life is like a seed, it says in 1 John, that is capable of being germinated and growing and maturing and producing fruit. That when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, He gives to the person the potential for a radically different experience of life. Many of us can testify to that. He gives us potential for a radically different experience of life, but it's not automatic. That experience is something that we have to participate in as we learn to obey God. Now, we are told that the spirit can be grieved, says that in the book of Ephesians. He's grieved by our sin which is one sign that God himself in some way is harmed, we might say, by sexual immorality. It brings grief to him. We are told that his empowerment in our lives can be quenched in First Thessalonians chapter 5. It can be kind of like drenching a fire and water so that it's brought down just to embers. The Spirit's work in our lives can be quenched if we snub his calling for us to live for God and seeking to obey him and follow him. In other words, all of these things do not happen automatically, and yet the spirit is pictured in the human life like this incredible internal pressure to change. He will not dwell in a human being without bringing bear on a human life, any person, bringing bear change, confronting the ways in which we think and we live, we can remove ourselves from the fellowship of the church, and we will try to quench those feelings of uh, being convicted that our lifestyle, our words, our ways of relating are not healthy. And yet, he will still continue to work inside people, and oftentimes we can't see this. But that's the first reason that we must think of sexual immorality, excuse me, as being a sin against God. It is because God has given us his spirit in order to make us holy. And when we seek to move in a direction other than holiness, then we are um, not reflecting his character. And then he also says, past that, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Now, what that tells us is that Jesus... an incomprehensible price in order for us to be restored to God. To pay for all of our sins, everything we have ever done or thought against the purposes of God, Jesus died on the cross. And when we are brought by the Spirit's work to faith in Christ, and we have this sense of assurance that God has forgiven us because of what Jesus did, we know that we belong to him. So we should pursue sexual purity because ultimately we belong to God. We are set free, but we're not set free to do whatever we want. We're set free from bondage to sin to live for him. And there you have it. That's the perspective of the Bible. This is God's word written. It's not common philosophy today, and it's a little bit uncomfortable to state it quite so clearly. The fact is what people do in their bedroom, I suppose, with some exceptions, is uh, no one else's business but them. As long as you pay attention to the one qualification that everyone puts on it as long as no one gets hurt. And the fact is, from the Bible's perspective, people are hurt. The person himself or herself who engages in it is hurt. They mark themselves indelibly with memories and sensations and things they will carry with them into every future relationship. Their future spouses are hurt because something that rightfully should belong to them Is given to someone else. And God Himself is grieved by it because He made us for Himself. And He gave His Son for us to make us holy. Now, just a few simple applications. The first is for single people and teenagers keep yourself pure for your future spouse. Keep yourself pure for your future spouse. Resolve not to be sexually active until you're married. I know that is not only unpopular, it's made fun of in popular circles on the television and movies. But that is the teaching of the Bible. And it says here, flee immorality, run away from it. Youth involves the awakening of strong impulses that you must be aware of, and you should be aware of your vulnerability and don't overestimate your ability. To withstand and resist temptations, stay away from it, and that means staying away from certain movies, pictures, parties, video games, relationships, whatever. Resolve to be pure for your future spouse. And for married people, marriage is really hard work. It's a lot of fun, too, but it's hard work. It's filled with great joy and great obstacles. But let me encourage you, if you're a Christian here today and you're married, resolve to work on your marriage, to continue to work on your marriage in order to set an example for those many young people who are coming from broken homes and have no model of what marriage is like. I've often told my children that when I was growing up, until I got to my last two years of high school, I had one friend in my circle of relationships whose parents were not married. I mean, that sounds like I'm talking about the 1600s, doesn't it? It wasn't quite that long ago. When my children were growing up, the reason we had the discussions is that it had actually reversed. Some of my children literally had only one or two acquaintances whose parents were in their original marriage. Times have changed. Things have changed a great deal. And over 50% of the population in this country is being raised in homes where one of the parents, at least, has experienced divorce. And we have many in our congregation. And we need to be sensitive to the fact that they are put in difficult positions of seeking to raise children, uh, oftentimes by themselves or dealing with uh, pressures uh, from relationship, you know, a former spouse and things like that. But I'm just telling you, if you're married here today, resolve to work at your marriage. Even if it's not your first marriage, you resolve to work at your marriage for the sake of those who need to have modeled uh, so much of what faithfulness is meant to be. And then let me say to everyone this thing regardless of your past, no wonder, no matter what kind of relationships you engaged in, whether you attempted to be moral and and maybe succeeded to a great degree until you got married, or you stumbled and fell grievously before you got married, regardless of what your background was, let me just encourage you, this should remind us to cling to the grace of God. That's what the gospel is all about. Jesus didn't say, I came to bring righteous people into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he said the opposite. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, there are people who think they're righteous, and they really are beyond the pale of Jesus' help because they don't see their need for a Savior. But one of the gracious gifts of God when he draws a person to faith in Christ is he gives to us this sense of sin and what it means, things that maybe we discounted in the past. we We come to realize, oh, that was not what God revealed as to how he wanted me to live. seemed right at the time, but it wasn't right. And God has given to us this area of life, as I've tried to say for the last four weeks, in part to awaken within us this sense of need for him and need for grace. He purchased us at a price, the precious blood of Christ, so that he could bring us back to himself. And in the context of his church and the gift of his spirit and the word of God, he could remake our lives so that we'll live differently as we move forward. Let me just draw your attention to a verse that's found in the book of Hebrews. You don't need to turn there. But we read uh, how the death of Christ compares to all the animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament system, there was a temple and the priest came and uh, the worshiper would lay his hand on the head of an animal in a symbolic transfer of his sins to the animal. And then the priest would kill the animal and drain its blood and they would burn the parts on... Uh, an altar, and all of that, we are told, was meant to be a picture of the fact that God, a God of infinite holiness, can only be approached through a sacrifice. It must cost something. Some payment must be made. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, the Bible says. And here's what the passage says in Hebrews chapter 9, and verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. I'm sure you all understood every word that I just read. (laughs) What it it says is that if under that Old Testament system, the blood of various sacrificial animals, and, and he refers to a specific kind of sacrifice, the red heifer, offering in which once a year a red heifer was killed, burned to ash, and the ashes were mixed with water, and the water was sprinkled on people if they were ritually defiled. They had sinned in some way, and they came for cleansing. This water was sprinkled on them. If the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer functions to make a person outwardly acceptable is the idea. If it actually works so that God said, now you can come back to worship. It presumed repentance, but it doesn't use the word. That's why he says it functioned to to make them outwardly clean, purification of the flesh. All that is a backdrop. If that was true in the Old Testament, that there were sacrifices, and God allowed them to to work, they worked to make a person ritually acceptable to come back into the temple and worship God, if that was true, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, it doesn't say how much more will the blood of Christ purify our consciousness like our memory of sin. It doesn't say that. We will always retain the memory of sin once we've committed it. As long as we're sentient, we're going to go through life That memory is what makes us the person that we are. The fact that that was something we engaged in, it doesn't cleanse the memory. Sometimes we wish that would be the case, that it would take away all the memories of whatever sins we committed. The Bible doesn't promise that. It says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's the message of the gospel. When we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, what we're doing is we're acknowledging that we are people who have sinned, but our conscience is clean because of what Jesus has done. That's true of people who have received the gospel, though as we move through life, we have to continue to reapply that and understand more deeply what that means in our experience, the cleansing of the conscience. So whatever you've taken out of these messages, I hope you take that You should cling to the grace of God. That's what we rely on as we come to the table today. Not that we live perfect lives, but that God has brought us to turn away from those things which we foolishly engaged in in the past and to turn to him and find his grace. Let's thank him for that. Again, our gracious Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming to you and worshiping you in the way that you have commanded. As we look into your word and we sing and we pray, I ask that you would enable us to bring our hearts to you with reckless abandon and to lay upon your altar whatever it is that has troubled us in our conscience. And we would find that the blood of Christ is more than able to cleanse the conscience from all of those things. We would find ourselves with the memories of sin, but now humbled and broken by it. We would find ourselves free to be free Oh, I'll <music>